As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. This is DeRay, and welcome to Pot Save the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then we have an interview where I talk to Michael Bennett and Pele Bennett, co-hosts of the new Lemonada Media podcast, Mouthpiece. The thing that's on my heart this week is about friendship. Part of our responsibility to ourselves and the community that we live in, the community we build, is to foster relationships with the people we love and to make sure that we do it in ways that are honest and are accountable. When I think about accountability, accountability is how close am I to the things I said I was going to do? And recently, I've come to just be so thankful of the friends that I have. We are able to sort of push each other and hold each other to the things that we said we're going to do. And those sort of relationships are ones that are invaluable. I think that what often happens that like tears people apart is that they misunderstand accountability to be how close are you to the things I want you to do. And that just isn't what it is. Accountability is how close are you to the things you said you were going to do. How do we make sure that the people in our lives that we hold them accountable in a loving space has been important to me. Here we go. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam's Way on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. I, I, I. And this is DeRay at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So this past week, Trump got up there and gave his State of the Union address. Nancy tore up the speech. <laughs> she said nothing but lies, hogwash. She said the people have been bamboozled run amok, led astray. But one of the things that I found out in the last 24 hours is that the young woman who was given a scholarship to attend the school of her choice as Trump made himself the champion of the school choice movement, which is a deeper conversation that we won't have right now. Trump gave that scholarship to a young woman who is already going to a good school, even though during his State of the Union speech, he said that she was attending a failing school and was locked in a school that was not serving her. But according to her own mother, the Trump administration called not her daughter's current school, but a previous school that was private and that she could not afford to go to anymore. But her mother ended up enrolling her in a school that, by her mother's review, believes is a good school and that she has no desire to take her daughter out of. She did not know that her daughter would be getting a scholarship when they got invited to the State of the Union. And this is yet another example of the fact that this president is pretty much a reality TV show maven. Because what we saw was made for TV fantasy. There was a military family that was reunited, a Tuskegee Airman that was celebrated, the pomp, the circumstance, the spectacle that was created and now apparently falsified was made for prime time. And uh, I just found it completely fascinating that he that even this president would go that far as he was trotting out all of the black folks to try to make a pitch to black America in particular. So, you know, disappointed, but not surprised. Yeah, Pelosi called it, I think, uh, a manifesto of myths, truths. And the, the writer in me was like, I see you with the with the alliteration out here. I was like a, a labyrinth of lies, a marathon of myths. My man was out here fabricating, a forest of fabrication. There we go. 
I mean, it was, it was as you said, Brittany, a 45-minute uh, infomercial. And it didn't matter what was true. It didn't matter what was false. Uh, and it was a preview of what we're going to get for the next several months. And I think also the Super Bowl commercial talking about attempting to represent the Trump administration as a advocate of criminal justice and black life adjacent to criminal justice, um, using criminal justice reform basically as a metonym for we help, help black people, or whether it be what was done at the State of the Union, it is both an effort to get more black people to vote for him. But I think it's also something that is meant to mitigate the guilt or misgivings or hesitancy of white people who want to support him, but don't want to support someone who other people tell them is racist. And if they have evidence that they can use in their arsenals to say, oh, he's not racist. Did you see the Super Bowl commercial? Did you see the Tuskegee Airmen? Did you see the young woman at the State of the Union? Then it makes it easier for them to get into the booth to justify what they may or may not have done otherwise. So I think it is as much aimed at taking away the large percentage of black folks who vote Democrat as much as it is trying to get white folks who don't want to feel like they are supporting a racist to uh, vote for him as well. So, you know, like you said, Clint, this is yet another example of how Trump and the Trump campaign and the administration have used individual cases where the administration might have done right by a few people and a few black people in particular uh, as a symbol for what they are actually not doing at all at a policy and structural level um, to help black communities, right? So we see, you know, in this State of the Union, Trump had Alice Johnson, who he issued clemency for, uh, and she got out of jail early was one of only 24 people, by the way, who have received clemency under the Trump administration so far. And only five of those 24 people, by the way, are people who did not have previous connections to the Republican Party in Trump's base. So again, Alice Johnson is one of a handful of people who has received uh, clemency under this administration, but nevertheless is sort of depicted as this example, is in the ad during the Super Bowl, is at the State of the Union address. Meanwhile, you look at the Obama administration, they issued clemency to 1,900 people. And Obama didn't sort of use that as a political prop or a political tool, um, just did it because it was right. It's a an illusion or a distraction from some of the policies that this administration has put into place that have deeply harmed black people at sort of the population level. So you look at the repeal of the civil rights protections, uh, civil rights investigations and consent decrees for uh, police departments. And, you know, that has, you know, undoubtedly made things more difficult and contributed to police violence in black communities. You look at when Jeff Sessions was AG and now under AG Barr, this remains in place, but they repealed the Obama administration's decision uh, to not seek the harshest possible penalties for drug offenses at the uh, Department of Justice, right? And so that alone contributes to more incarceration. You look at even the First Step Act, which Trump routinely uses to sort of display his support for criminal justice reform. Well, actually, a third of all the people released so far under the First Step Act have been subsequently deported, right? And that is huge, a huge number of people. But nevertheless, you know, they are using these talking points and these singular acts as symbolism to cover up what is, on balance, uh, an incredibly harmful administration to Black people in particular and to communities of color in general when we talk particularly about immigration and a range of other issues as well. And now the news. So my news is about a topic that I didn't even know was a thing, is that uh, the Marshall Project, in conjunction with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, wrote about the use of restraint chairs. 
So there is a man, Albert Okel, who is suing the Wayne County Jail in Missouri because he is saying uh, that the jail staffers cuffed his wrists and ankles to a restraint chair where they force fed him. And I quote, they force fed him, covered his head with a blanket, addressed him with the N word and refused to let him use the bathroom, leaving him to urinate and defecate on himself. He remembers being restrained for five days. And this starts off a story that includes so many more people who have also sued the Wayne County Jail. Remember that the jail is run by the county sheriff, Dean Finch, and a number of jail staffers are also being sued because this experience left him and other people physically in pain and emotional trauma. And they talk, they go on and on to talk about what it's like to sleep, being cuffed to a chair, the long-term health impact of those sort of things. There are some states like Florida and Utah that have banned the use of those restraints. But a lot of county jails still use them, as well as some immigration detention facilities. And the Marshall Project actually did a review of lawsuits and press reports about the chair that have been linked to around 20 jail deaths in the past six years. And in 2014, USA Today did a study that showed the device had been related to at least 36 deaths going back to the 1990s. So you think about the way we talk about incarceration, the way we talk about prisons and jails. I literally had not even known that there were restraint chairs like this or we were strapping people like the government was strapping people down. And, you know, the thing about jails that we've talked about before is that most jails are run by sheriffs who are elected. So there's really no oversight to them outside of the four year cycle with the election. So people, their only recourse is to sue. But this is a reminder that with all of these public institutions and while we work for the end of incarceration, at the very least, there should be robust uh, citizen oversight to make sure that these sort of things don't happen where people are literally being Restraint in chairs. There's another person that's referenced in 2014, uh, a man named Stacy Black. He was held in the chair for 28 days following what the jail says is a suicide attempt. Now, the sheriff won't respond to any calls from the press because he's facing re-election. Uh, and he's saying that he can't say anything because he's being sued. But it is sort of wild to think that these devices uh, still exist in this day and age. And again, these are the parts of mass incarceration that people don't really understand and don't really see. So I wanted to make sure I brought this here because uh, it was something that was new to me. You know, this is part of a broader conversation about mass incarceration that also reflects my news, which is about a new study that just came out that was done by Professor Christopher Wildman uh, and Lars Anderson. Uh, and what they did that was fascinating is looked at the issue of solitary confinement, right? So there's the restraints and some of the excessive force tactics and devices that are used in the context of prison. Uh, and then there is the use of tactics like putting people in solitary confinement and isolating people and alienating people and depriving people and neglecting people that also is a form of violence that we see impacting people who are incarcerated. And in this study in particular, they look at solitary confinement in Denmark. And what's interesting about this is they got access to a huge amount of data on incarceration in Denmark, data on everybody who's been incarcerated for more than seven days between 2006 and 2011, uh, which is almost 14,000 people, because of course, Denmark has a smaller population and a much lower incarceration rate than the US. And for those 14,000 people, they looked at controlling for a variety of other factors, like, you know, what your conviction was, your background, education level, gender, age, reason for a conviction, sentence length, prison security level, all of these different factors. They looked at specifically the impact that being put into solitary confinement as a punishment for a rule violation in prison, uh, that that has on 
your outcomes after you're released, uh, in particular looking at death and mortality. And what they find is that for people who are placed in solitary confinement, controlling for all of those other factors, uh, they were about 60% more likely to die within five years after being released from prison. And what was also interesting about this is that those who died, who had been put in solitary confinement, tended to die from what they call non-natural causes. So this is uh, suicide, violence, and homicide. So these are things that are related to your your psyche that may be directly related to uh, a mental health and psychological impact of being placed in solitary confinement. Um, But what's fascinating about all of this is that most of the people in this study actually weren't put in solitary confinement for longer than 15 days. Now, 15 days is the UN standard for torture. So what the UN has said uh, is that solitary confinement for more than 15 days constitutes torture. What's interesting about this, and obviously in the US, people are placed in solitary confinement for far more than 15 days. Um, But even in this study, people were placed in some cases for just a couple of days, and it yet and still had an impact on their psychological health and ultimately on their mortality rate after being released. So, you know, again, this, this points to number one, the need for policies, just like policies that prohibit the use of restraint chairs, also policies that prohibit the use of solitary confinement. And then more broadly, thinking about all of the people who uh, have been placed in solitary confinement, have experienced this trauma, and get released, and the supports that they will need uh, in order to manage the pain and the trauma of that experience as well. I'm struck by the consistency with which we throw certain people away in society and how easily we can connect the dots between those instances and people's fate. Because this kind of intentional disconnection and degradation is exactly what we see contributing to the school-to-prison pipeline, that you are expelling young people and suspending young people for childlike behaviors, criminalizing childlike behaviors, and they begin to internalize these ideas. It affects the psyche. I gave a speech the other day for student conduct administrators, which are basically a title for people who handle discipline issues in the higher education level. And unlike research on the racial disparities in student discipline at the K through 12 level, There is a real lack of research at the higher ed level. But what I did find pointed to this exact same theme, that there were Black men in particular who were punished at higher rates and in more punitive ways than their white counterparts. And what they then carried with them after that was a level of challenge in trying to reframe their self-esteem and trying to reframe their self-worth. And as a result, administrators would often see them as more guilty. So this kind of disconnection, this kind of degradation, this kind of lack of humanity is consistent across all of the ways that we continue to criminalize marginalized people. And at some point, we have to ask ourselves what that says about us. Like, this is absolutely a policy failing. This is absolutely a political failing. But if you remember nothing else from what we talk about all the time and why we talk about it all the time, this is a moral failing. This is a stain on all of our spirits that we are okay living in a society that treats people this way because those folks are supposed to be human beings and treated as such. So one, Duray, I wasn't fully cognizant of the extent to which these restraining chairs were being used as well. And I was particularly unsettled by the way that 
correctional officers would often beat and tase and physically harm people under the pretense of trying to control them when they were already secured in these restraining chairs. Um, and so there's there's clearly no need to tase someone if they're already strapped to a chair that they can't escape from. But there were example after example of this happening to people throughout the country. And so I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Sam, you mentioned the UN report and I spent some time with thinking about this because a lot of the folks that I interviewed for my dissertation uh, are people who ex- they were serving life sentences. And many of them, I think almost all of them, experienced uh, solitary confinement and spoke very graphically about what it does to be locked in a room with no social interaction, with little to no light. Some of them may have had books or things that they could write or read, but a lot of them had nothing, right? And so most of us can barely stand in the grocery store line without pulling our phone out and fiddling with our thumbs or having something to do. Imagine doing that 23 hours a day, every day, for weeks, for months, for years. It profoundly impacts the way that someone's neurological makeup and how it's composed. And I think it's worth, you mentioned the UN report from 2011, and it's worth reading an excerpt of that. And I'll do that here. It says, quote, research shows that Deprived of a sufficient level of social stimulation, individuals soon become incapable of maintaining an adequate state of alertness and attention to their environment. Indeed, even a few days of solitary confinement will shift an individual's brain activity toward an abnormal pattern characteristic of stupor and delirium. Solitary confinement, when used for the purpose of punishment, cannot be justified for any reason, precisely because it imposes severe mental pain and suffering beyond any reasonable retribution for criminal behavior and thus constitutes an act defined in Article 1 or Article 16 of the Convention Against Torture and a breach of Article 7 in the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. And so it's a long way of saying it's torture and there's no legitimate reason to have solitary confinement regardless of the case. And so we know what it does. This new information you provided about people's likelihood of taking their own lives or, or dying more generally, even after just a few days of solitary confinement, is is so important in reasserting and reaffirming the the dangers of this, not only while someone is in solitary confinement, but long after they've been released. And we've mentioned it before, but there's perhaps the best media portrayal of the impact of solitary confinement uh, was in the TV miniseries on Netflix, When They See Us. We mentioned it a few times, the incredible series by Ava DuVernay. I, th- I believe it's the final or the second to last episode depicts Corey Wise, um, who's played by Gerald Jerome, an incredible actor, for several minutes in solitary confinement. And it captures the claustrophobic, psychologically damaging nature of that phenomena in a way that I think was really important for many folks to see. So if you haven't watched the entire thing, but certainly watched that episode. And Clint, just to sort of double click on this, just to understand the scale of solitary confinement in the U.S., uh, as of 2012, uh, 450,000 people reported experiencing solitary confinement in the past 12 months. 450,000 people just in the United States and just in the past year, uh, according to that study, experienced uh, some version of solitary confinement, which we know can have these terrible impacts. And just to reflect on the fact that this study was focused on Denmark, right, which has a system of incarceration that is, like, by all indicators and metrics, far less uh, severe uh, and obscene than what we're seeing in the context of mass incarceration in the U.S. Only three uh, percent of all sentences in Denmark were longer than four years. So most people who are incarcerated in Denmark are incarcerated by a U.S. standard for a much shorter period. 
and yet and still like they were able to track the way in which prisons even in that context even in that country caused people to die by putting them in solitary confinement even for short periods of time so we have a lot of work to do in the u.s and uh, clearly there's a lot of work to do all across the world on this issue don't go anywhere more pod take the people's coming pod save the people is brought to you by factor warmer sunnier days are calling Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So hopefully my news will end up being encouraging to all of us. But it starts with a challenge. In 2017, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, announced a really bold new plan called the Excelsior Scholarship Program. If you are listening to this from somewhere in New York State, you may remember this or you may have applied for this or benefited from it. It essentially made New York State the first in the nation to cover four years of tuition to either of the state's two public college systems, the City University of New York or the State University of New York, CUNY and SUNY, respectively. This applied to students from families making less than $125,000 a year. What that means is access to 25 colleges across the state that include two-year institutions, four-year institutions, grad schools, and an honors college. Obviously, this is a really big deal. And as a reminder, Americans have a collective $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. That's 1,000 billions of debt during an era that is obviously marked by an ever-growing wealth gap. So that means that the ability for people, black and brown folks in particular, to actually pay back this mounting student loan debt is harder and harder year after year. So the program requires participants to enroll full time, to commit to working in New York for a certain number of years after graduation, and to maintain a 2.0 GPA. This GPA requirement in particular was something that activists worked really hard on because they wanted to make sure that this was more accessible than many traditional programs. It's really important to note, though, that the program actually doesn't offer a tuition payment up front. It actually kicks in after other federal financial aid funds are all exhausted, and then it makes up the difference. Of course, with anything this new and massive, there are rollout issues and growing pains. There are some students who meet the financial requirements but were still rejected from the program. In 2018, only about 32% of the 63,599 students who applied for the Excelsior funding were actually granted it. So nearly 70% of people were denied. Part of this is because the applications for the program initially exceeded the budget that was set aside by the state government for it. But many people were actually rejected for a single reason, because while they exhibited the necessary financial need, they couldn't enroll in school full time. 33 percent of all CUNY students are part time people like working parents, folks who have to support their families with a full time job, non-traditional students, most certainly folks who can't afford to financially or physically be full time students are still in need of a great deal of help. And Excelsior does not cover living expenses. So many students need to still work to cover those living expenses, but then they can't pay for school because they have to work full time and they can't access those Excelsior funds. And the cycle just continues. 
I wanted to bring this here for a particular reason, not necessarily to analyze this program, but to remind us that growing pains often stop us from dreaming big. I remember when Obamacare first got passed and the exchange website went up on the net and then it crashed multiple times for several days for lots of people who were trying to get their health care for the first time. And there were lots of people who wrote off the entire program because of that clunky rollout. There are a lot of people who continuously let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And there were folks who will see a particular programmatic or process failing as an indication that the entire plan can't work. There are two presidential candidates right now who say that free college is possible. And there will be plenty of folks who will look at the struggles of the Excelsior program and they will say, look, free college is impossible. Here's an example. So why even try? I'm not endorsing anybody through this conversation because we all have to make informed choices for ourselves in this electoral season. But it is to say this, as Nelson Mandela said, it always seems impossible until it's done. And I want us to get out ahead of the rhetoric that we will absolutely hear about how many things are impossible from people, not just during this election cycle, but throughout our lives when we dare to do things that are hard, but will help a lot of people. So I just wanted to bring this up as a reminder for all of us that we should never, ever let anything stop us from dreaming big or kill our courage to achieve the big things. We learn, we grow, we improve, we evolve, but we never, ever quit. And the things that are worth doing are hard, and the hard things are worth doing. So Brittany, I'm glad that you brought uh, this to the conversation because I've been sort of shocked in this presidential campaign how much we've heard about covering college tuition as quote unquote free college, but how little we've heard from the candidates, from most of the candidates around the issue of how are we actually making sure that people can afford room and board, costs of living, books, um, and so many other costs associated with going to college that, you know, in reading this article, often are even higher or more burdensome because in order to qualify for a free college program, you have to be a full-time student. If you're a full-time student, then it's harder to have a job. If it's harder to have a job, it's harder to pay for all of these other expenses associated with going to college that the free college programs, at least in New York, have not provided. And that that sort of complexity is critical for policymakers to grapple with on the front end, hopefully, so that we do see the outcomes that we're hoping for. And where it's not grasped on the front end, like we're seeing in New York, where there remain so many barriers to going to college as a low-income student, that we are building on those successes and implementing programs that can actually make sure that there are pathways for folks that are covering you know, room and board and books and all of these other costs. Now, according to analyses for low-income students, when you look at the data, it's room and board and books and all these other fees that are actually the primary barrier, more so than tuition, to being able to afford college. Um, and so I just hope that that more conversations at the national level and federal level can focus in on that issue specifically, can propose bold solutions in that area to move the conversation forward uh, to that next level where it can actually create real pathways for the large number of students who actually need it to get access to these programs. Yeah, and I'll just add that I think that folks who were born into homes and into families and into communities where going to college was always the expectation. Many folks take for granted the extent to which college affordability really prevents, like truly prevents so many 
young people and adults from making the decision to get the degree that ultimately would give their lives a fundamentally different financial trajectory than not. I mean, like, as you all know, I've been a teacher for better part of a decade now, both in high school and incarcerated spaces. And there's so many people who say that they wanted to go to college, but simply couldn't afford it or who wanted to go to college, but the only way they could go is if they took on tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. And these are folks coming from families where they also have to be partial breadwinners. These are folks coming from families where they also have to take care of a lot of other dependents, a lot of other extended family. And so the conversation about free college can become abstract. Should we have means tested? Should we have discretionary? Should we have universal? I think what has been proven is that universal programs over the course of the past several decades of public policy have proven to be more durable, more effective than programs that are conditioned based on one's income. The list goes on and on and on, social security, public libraries, public parks, Medicare, you name it. But I also think that folks just need to remember that like every day a person is making a decision to not even apply to school sometimes, right? Like it's not even like I got into this school and I'm now I decide I can't afford it. But part of it is the attrition that happens during the application process from people feeling so disillusioned by what they see all around them, people who are saddled with debt or people who, you know, weren't able to to finish college because they couldn't afford it for a variety of reasons. So now they have debt for something that they couldn't finish. It's just, this is a very real thing that I see again and again and again in the lives of so many people coming from historically disadvantaged communities, that free college is not merely a slogan. It is the thing that will allow for millions of people to have a fundamentally different set of circumstances and potentially different set of possibilities for their lives than they currently do. So I learned a lot about free college recently because I was I realized that I heard people talk about it, but didn't really understand it. Uh, everybody should check out the study that the Education Trust did about free college, and they mapped out the free college programs across the country. The thing that I'll offer is they had a set of criteria that they looked for, and it really helped frame for me the scope of what free college should actually be. So, so I'll share those with people. The Education Trust was looking at whether it covers at least four years of tuition and covers a bachelor's degree at a four-year institution. And the idea behind that is that when a state only covers two years of tuition for schooling, then that is not free college for people who want to do four-year degrees or people can only afford the first two years and can't actually afford the last two, which is why they needed to apply for that free college program in the first place. Uh, whether it helps low-income students cover living expenses and covers fees in addition to tuition. So a lot of free college programs are tuition only, no assistance with books or room and board or travel, anything like that. Uh, whether it includes adults and returning students. So what the Education Trust notes is that more than a third of students currently enrolled in higher education programs are 25 or older. So if it only includes people who just graduated from high school, there's a whole set of people who are actually excluded who want to participate in higher education. What the GPA requirement is is something that they track, whether it allows students to enroll half-time. So this is big for low-income and older students who have to go to work. So if the free college program only covers full-time enrollment, that is potentially limiting. Uh, and then whether the free college program that normally comes as a grant, whether the grant converts or not to a loan if the criteria isn't met. So say, for example, somebody drops out or something happens and they, have to, they can't finish the initial commitment. Uh, in some places, that initial grant converts into a loan, and that actually just becomes a debt burden for people. And that really helped me sort of understand better the scope of what free college could be 
if it meets all these. And what they found is that no place really meets all of them. Um, but there's some places that are better than others. And so for my news, uh, last week, the Virginia House voted to strike down Lee Jackson Day from a list of state holidays. The holiday was observed on the Friday before Martin Luther King Jr. Day in January, and it honors Robert E. Lee and Thomas Stonewell Jackson, who were, quote, defenders of causes, which is uh, a historical euphemism, if I've ever heard one. Just so everyone is reminded, Robert E. Lee and Stonewell Jackson, both generals for the Confederacy, they both owned enslaved people and both fought to preserve slavery in the United States. In his place, the House bill proposed making Election Day a federal holiday. And so get rid of Lee Jackson Day, make Election Day a federal holiday, expand the franchise, increase access to the polls. Seems like a win-win. And the bill is likely to pass because it has the support of Governor Ralph Northam already and because the Virginia Senate passed an identical bill last month. And both chambers will need to approve the legislation before it appears before the governor, which it looks uh, increasingly likely to do. And so this is in many ways an example of what is possible when you have Democrats controlling the state legislature, as well as the governorship, and a a reminder of how important local and down-ballot elections are this November and always. And I wanted to add just that a lot of people aren't aware of the extent to which Confederate holidays are still celebrated. What you may not know is that there are 11 states throughout the country, and there are 23 holidays and observances celebrating the Confederacy that still exist. Five of those states have paid holidays for state employees. In Alabama, there's a Robert E. Lee Day, a Confederate Memorial Day. Day, a Jefferson Davis birthday. Uh, in Mississippi, there's Robert E. Lee Day, Confederate Memorial Day, Jefferson Davis's birthday. In South Carolina, uh, Confederate Memorial Day. In Texas, there's Confederate Heroes Day. In both Alabama and Mississippi, Robert E. Lee's birthday is celebrated on the same day as Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is just gross. And This is a reminder of how the lost cause and the mythology of the lost cause has continued to persist over the course of generations. And it is exciting and it is good to see a state like Virginia taking this on. Obviously, this is a conversation around Confederate monuments and Confederate holidays that we've been having for for several years now and that many, many activists and particularly black activists in communities have been having for for much longer. But this is a good thing. Get rid of Lee Jackson Day. Replace it with Election Day. I think it's something we should do all across the country. So as a resident of uh, the DMV, D.C., Maryland and Virginia, there have been times when it was time for me to move. And I was like, maybe I'll look at Virginia. There's nice property down in the air. Their targets have, you know, parking lots instead of me having to find street parking. But I'll never forget in 2010 when the former governor of Virginia, Bob McDonald, not only reclaimed and resurrected Confederate History Month, but he also did it with a proclamation that literally just left slavery out. Kind of like what you were just saying about men who fought for causes. Um, they just completely, he just completely left slavery out. And every time I think of that, it quickly swings me right back toward finding property anywhere but Virginia. That said, I think that this is a particularly powerful shift. And it's some of what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago when we were saying that often places are turning immediately to technology solutions to try to increase turnout. 
And there are some pretty simple solutions that we could do, like passing election day holidays at the local and state level. I think that tech can be a really powerful tool. But as Iowa very clearly reminded us, if it is a tool that exists without human relationships and human consideration, then it often actually falters at the very thing that it was trying to accomplish. I also think that it's really important that we remind people exactly who Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee were, because just like the Lost Cause mythology can often be cover for people who are looking to defend the celebration of white supremacy, people often use mythology or uh, euphemistic stories about these Confederate quote unquote heroes in order to defend their support of days like this. In fact, in the article that you sent us, Clint, there was a man named Carson Villa, who is a supporter of Lee Jackson Day, who said, quote, I think Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee are some of the greatest men to have ever lived. Great men. And we're all getting washed away. End quote. So I was thinking to myself, how could one actually fix their mouths in 2020 to say that? And it's in part because of the mythology that gets told about both of these people. So if you look up the words African-American and Stonewall Jackson, there are several articles that come up about what a benevolent enslaver he was because he taught the enslaved people on his property to read and write, which was illegal in Virginia. So people are saying that he was a friend to black folks because he did this. What's true, though, is that this was actually really religious instruction because he wanted to civilize, quote unquote, African savages. So again, when we go for the mythology instead of the truth, it's easy to think that you are defending somebody who is worth your defense. Robert E. Lee, of course, wrote a letter to his wife in 1856. He said, but what I will acknowledge is that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country. But then he went on to say that it is a greater evil to the white man than to the black race. And for Black folks, the, quote, painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their instruction. So anytime we hear folks stepping up to defend these folks and have the audacity to bring the kind of half-truths into the conversation that do not acknowledge very fully who these folks were, the fact that they were enslavers, defenders of the institution of slavery, Confederate generals, and deeply paternalistic people, always has to be brought back up into the conversation so the truth can be told. So two things came to mind in response to this. Uh, first, I did some digging to figure out some of the history of what happened to Robert E. Lee and some of the other Confederates after the war, after the Civil War. And I didn't know, first of all, that in 1865, the U.S. government decided to grant amnesty to former Confederates and actually pardoned Robert E. Lee after he surrendered in 1865 by President Lincoln. Um, the other thing that I didn't know is that in 1975, so there was a debate over the citizenship of people like Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, as well as Robert E. Lee, and whether or not they were U.S. citizens or Confederate citizens and what that meant after the Confederacy was defeated. Apparently in 1975, there was actually legislation that was passed. Obviously, this was after they had died, but this granted citizenship to Robert E. Lee. And the other thing that's interesting about this is just, you know, when you think of 
how this actually took place in Virginia and why this is taking place now that finally they are dismantling this holiday celebrating racist traitors is that, you know, the House and the Senate have flipped into Democratic control. Uh, it is now a Democratic trifecta for the first time in a extremely long time. And I remember how in 2017, we had that election for the Virginia House of Delegates that ended up getting decided by, it was like a, they pulled a name out of a hat or did a coin toss. It was a tie. And literally the whole control of the House was decided that Republicans won control after some like flipping a coin process. And finally, after the midterms, the House flipped Democratic along with the Senate, which made it possible for this to even pass. Um, and it's a reminder of how important it is to participate in elections at the state level, even on off years, um, because ultimately those decisions now can lead to something as big as not only repealing the Confederate holiday, but also enacting a holiday for the election. One of the things that I didn't know is that election day was officially set in 1845, when a Tuesday in early November was a convenient time for farmers to vote. Obviously, this is a different world that we live in today. And it reminds me of something we talked about, this idea that like just because it's been around for a long time must mean it's the right decision. And that the idea of Election Day being a holiday is like such a simple notion, but it obviously disadvantages a certain set of people that people don't want to be able to vote. And I had no clue that it was said in 1845. The other thing is that there are a lot of states that do have uh, no excuse early voting, but there are a lot of places that you have to have a reason to get an absentee ballot. So like you have to know way in advance that you're going to be out of town and you have to like sign an affidavit saying that you physically can't make it to the polling station. It's like, why does the government care whether you vote in the polling booth or vote in your living room and mail it in? Like, there's no, there really is no reason why you should have to offer a small list of official reasons why you can get an absentee ballot. And another thing that I think would be interesting would be to think about uh, mail-in voting is that, you know, I think about the times that I try to squeeze in. And in Maryland, we do have early voting and I pretty much only vote early voting. Even then, it's like I'm normally like, OK, I wake up to vote and I'm trying to play it like everybody is. I'm trying to like time the right time where the line's not going to be too wild, but I'll be able to come in and I got like an hour to do this. But, you know, I'm assuming, you know, Brittany Clint, Sam, you probably mistimed it one election and you are there for like I remember voting for Obama. It was like I was outside for a long time. And the reality is, is that like voting by mail is a ballot too. And it'd be interesting to look and follow the places like Colorado, Oregon, Washington, uh, where voting by mail has been shown to increase the number of people that can vote. Also making sure that everybody has access uh, who has uh, an address. And for people who don't have addresses, those states have thought of interesting ways to make sure that people can also access uh, the ballots. But uh, like Brittany has said repeatedly, is that like while we innovate in a whole host of technological advances, some of the basic solutions are still the best. That's the news. So now I have uh, Michael and Bailey Bennett, who are a couple unlike any other. I had a great conversation with them. Michael plays in the NFL and has written extensively about racism. He also focuses on police violence. Bailey is a food advocate, a dancer, a philanthropist, and so much more. And it was exciting to talk to both of them about their new Lemonada Media podcast called Mouthpiece. Here we go. Pele and Michael, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So you two have a new podcast called Mouthpiece, and I'd love to know with all the things that you've done in the world and in careers, uh, why a podcast at this moment? Like, what led y'all to doing a podcast? 
I think we just wanted to do something together to be creative and be able to have a voice. But as a, a husband and a wife and business partners, as co-leaders in a lot of things that we do, we feel like it's not a lot of positive images when it comes to like marriage. Everything about marriage is usually kind of like the old ball and chain and kind of negative. And so it's good to be able to come to work with your wife and be able to share a message. And it's, it's the perfect time because... As you get older, I feel like our voices are getting stronger. So to be able to really work together and have a voice right now, I don't know. I just feel like it's a great time. I think it's also um, interesting, different perspectives, because you have the male perspective, female perspective. Then it's like a whole nother perspective of a marriage perspective um, where we come together on different ideas and thoughts. But I think also, like Michael said, was using our voice to talk about different issues that I feel that like to highlight marriage that you can still have these deep conversations, you can still like each other, you can still do things of interest with each other. And also through this process so far, you're still learning about each other. And I think that people think that when you're married, everything just kind of goes down or, you know, weakens, it loosens. But I actually think that depending, you know, your work on your marriage, you can strengthen in so many areas. And I think that using our voices, it'll kind of highlight those different areas that people are like, oh, I never thought about that. And they can come relatable. I know. And I think it's also us when we talk about voices, like the fear of voice. I think a lot of times people have a fear of having that voice, that place where they say something, they're going to be judged. You know, somebody's going to have an opinion about them or something like that. But I feel like for us, we're kind of over that spectrum. I think we experience a lot of things from the national anthem, all these different things that have happened to us. And then people have made their opinions and we still keep pushing forward. And I think that's important for our kids to see no matter what, like you still got to keep pushing forward. And having that strength of a, of a couple, I think, is not something that's usual in this in this generation because everything is based on individuality. And I think that's kind of where we want to break that barrier. Just like, why can't we do something collectively and be able to share the load? I'm happy that y'all have a podcast because this is is great. I'm interested in um, how both of you think about the issue of faith. Is this a topic that you think you'll engage on the podcast? Yeah, I think it's one of the third episodes or maybe the fourth one. We have Dr. Eddie Gallaud from Princeton University. And we kind of talk about, we talk about faith and we also talk about our different faith because she grew up in a Mormon church and I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. And so we, we really kind of dive in into what does religion play in society? I think my whole background is that, I mean, sometimes Pele is like... I say he's Pastor Bennett. <laughs> she called me Pastor Bennett at home. But it's not that I'm a preacher. I just remember I spent so much time in a church as a kid. Like, that was what we did. Like, my grandpa, he literally had a church that we built in the backyard. And so it was like we always went to church every single day in the summertime. So it was like everything that happened in the church, it was like a foundation of, like, morality for me personally and, and kind of building, like, principle and character. So I think... It was always in my mind, the story. So I always felt like the stories that were taught would kind of reflect on what would happen to society. And I think faith plays a big role in in society now because I feel like now there's a lack of faith when it comes to religion. Because I feel like, you know, you can have anything, but religion, it seems so like taboo now. You can't say God anymore. People get offended by it. So I do feel like there's a lack of faith. And I think we talk about that with uh, especially in the black church, we talk about how growing up, like the black church was like so important to the community. It was like every, even if you look back with Dr. King or whatever, the black church was everything to the civil rights movement. And then when I was growing up, the black church was everything. That's where we had our, that's where we had our community center. That's where we had our this, we had that. But now it seems like that is kind of changing in a lot of communities. 
Pele, do you still have a relationship with the Mormon church? So my family does. I'm also someone, so I feel like it's a Polynesian thing. Also, people are like, oh, are you, you're usually going to be asked that, oh, are you Mormon? Um, so I did grow up in the Mormon church, and all my family right now still are part of the Mormon church. I wouldn't say, I think me and Michael being married and being together so long, we've kind of formed our own idea of not what, our own religion don't read no, no, for no, my no. own religion <laughs> would you <laughs> like people, to join us <laughs> people, be, people be trying to kill us no no, no but no i religion. <laughs> no i'm saying like i think as you get older and like because we have different ideas on what faith looks like and all of that i think that we bounce it off of each other but i was telling michael one time i was like how did you remember and just absorb because i do joke that i'm like you're pastor bennett but he really is he's very knowledgeable he knows his bible and i'm like i grew up in the church like we were very active and i'm not gonna say i didn't pay attention but from what i took into now as an adult i'm like oh i don't remember that or i forgot that or was i was i paying attention so it's kind of interesting now how we look at it because now we have three kids and then how does that apply to our children but when our family is in town or the kids are with our family they do attend church with both sides of the family so they've seen you know both sides and we don't tell them to choose a side for me it's more so like i want them to understand what it is and then slowly have conversations so they can understand what that looks like for themselves yeah, and I think too. I think too. Like I, even when the whole national anthem thing came up, I think religion was a big conversation within the locker room because a lot of people were saying, "My fate won't allow me to take this knee. My fate won't allow me to stand up for what you guys are standing there for." And I think a lot of the times the conversation was my conversation was like, "Jesus Christ literally stood up for the people who didn't have a voice, and now that you're telling me that you won't do this because." You think that it's, it's not the same? I'm like, Jesus was crucified. It was killed by the, the state. Like, I was just explaining it to him, the validity of what what Jesus went through at this point in his life and what we were literally sitting on millions of dollars and being scared to say what was right because we were scared of the backlash or losing sponsorship. And I think that was a big issue within the locker room. Well, let's transition to talk about the NFL now in there are a lot of things I want to understand better, but can we just start with like where you think the state of the NFL is today, like with regard to race and issues of justice? Uh, I'll start there. I think it's mixed mixed emotions. I think uh, because if you look at any business, if you look at Amazon, Apple, we look at any business that we use on a daily basis. There's no company based on civil rights, based on doing things for humanity, right? I mean, I can't think of one where there's Nike. Nike had the campaign with Kaepernick, but still they had sweatshops in other countries. So it's no, really no company that has a soul when it comes to community. So I think that's the hardest thing because the NFL is trying to make strides to be a company that is trying to be in the forefront of pushing forward in social justice issues, but still there's the Kaepernick issue that it's still making it hard. It's this balancing scheme. It's like, yeah, you could do this, but at the same time, you still haven't done right by that situation. So I do think the state of the NFL when it comes to race issues is not completely there, but I do feel like they're trying to make strides and making things, but everything they do tends to <laughs> be seen in the wrong light. You know, whether it's with Jay-Z, people felt like that when Jay-Z took over and started doing stuff for the NFL, that he was a sellout or the NFL was trying to use him as a pawn. But I, I mean, I don't know if I feel like that. I've been in some meetings and I feel like a lot of times there's people who really want to make change in the communities. And I think a lot of players want to be able to make change in the communities. But I do think 
while we're trying to make changes in society, I think that we're lacking the change within our own structure when it comes to African-American coaches, African-American GMs, African-American representation within the whole scheme of the business of football. So I think we haven't made major jumps in that area either. I mean, you look at those five position openings for coaches and there wasn't not one black coach got a job. How is that possible when the league is made up of African-American players and it's like the league is built on the back of African-American players. The whole idea that, you know, being able to run fast and jump high, people want to see that. And the people who are bringing that is the black athlete. That makes sense. So I want to push a little bit on this idea of there's no company that is sort of doing justice uh, wholly and, and sort of push and see what you say about this notion that we don't think about the NFL like we think about an Apple or Walmart in the sense that the NFL wouldn't exist without government intervention. So we think about the Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961 that created the space for the broadcasting contracts that created what we call Sunday Night Football and all these that the NFL wasn't really a popular entity in 1959 when it got sued, but 61 comes, we get the act. And then we think about, you know, almost a quarter, if not more, of uh, NFL stadiums are actually publicly financed. So this is actually not private money. If anything, there's a case to be made that the NFL is as much a public entity or at least a quasi-public entity as, I don't know, something like a library or something, that it actually is not an Apple, that public money has so heavily either subsidized or just straight out funded the NFL, which is why people make the claim about it needing to be more equitable. And we even think about, you just talked about the coaches. We think about the Rooney rule. You know, I'm always reminded that the Rooney rule wouldn't even exist if Johnny Cochran hadn't threatened to sue the NFL in the first place. So trying to figure out, like, how do we maintain a level of expectation about the NFL that doesn't sort of allow them to operate or publicly exist as like this private entity that they are not, given that they literally would not be able to exist without a very intense government intervention. Why don't we expect every business to have that social movement, that social equity within the communities? Why I'm just saying the NFL, every business, even if you say that the NFL is not a private, but most of the teams are owned privately, maybe not the stadium, but the team is owned privately. But we require them. My whole question is, as we ask the NFL to do these things. We also need to ask the other businesses that are in our communities, the grocery stores, to have social equity within our communities. The Walmarts come in, they take the mom and pop stores out. You know what I'm saying? So as consumers, we need to ask the companies that we invest in or the companies that we buy from to make sure that they have that equity within our community. And like you said, I mean, without the Rooney Rule, a lot of things wouldn't happen. But I just feel that, you know, the NFL is trying to make strides. And I think it's just, we don't have to be patient, but at the same time, I think a lot of it has to be on the players too. I think the players, as much as the consumers are part of the issue, I think the players are part of the issue too, because the players are not saying, Hey, we want black coaches right now. We're not going to play. So I do think there's a sense of there haven't been a true civil rights movement within the league as players asking for our coaches, people that look like us to have jobs. I haven't seen that much. I've seen us focus on other things, but we haven't focused on that ourselves. I think it requires us too to make a stance for what we believe in and what we want for the coaches too. Pele, how do you think about the NFL and what's going on in this moment? I see it as, like Michael was saying, I think it does need to start inside We've been in the league for 11 years. And I think out of the 10 years, I was a part of the, um, in each team that we were at, I was a part of the women's organization. And so for me, my you know point of view came from that area because we would be a part of these meetings and we were supposed to go out into the community and help. And 
instead of us coming in and really making decisions on what that would look like, it was more so it was already put together and then we just come and support the activity. And so when we started going out into these different events and doing these activities, it wasn't reflected how the outside, you know, who the communities we were touching, they didn't reflect it. And I also view it as like the NFL, like Michael was saying, you know, predominantly African-American. I feel like that needs also to reflect the communities that are supporting them and the communities that we are supporting our dollars, because these are different organizations outside of the NFL that are supporting communities and making donations and contributions. But it wasn't reflecting from what my community looked like or from what the NFL, how I viewed the NFL. And so I feel like those little things also, like Michael was saying, players need to be engaged. I do think it's a full circle. So I feel like all the, the women can honestly like use your voice and to speak up for what the community, how they're being affected and which community is being affected in general. Do you, so you don't think that Apple and other companies should have social equity within the communities and things that they're doing? I feel like, what's your point on that? I need to know your point on that. I agree with the macro point, right? I just, that doesn't factor into how I feel about the NFL. So in the same way that like, you know, I used to teach sixth grade math and uh, should the seventh grade math classroom be great? Absolutely. And like when it wasn't, it wasn't. And that was really sad. That didn't impact what I was doing in my classroom. Uh, my classroom was one where I had high expectations and like I ran those expectations every day. So while the classrooms around me should have been amazing and like as a teacher in the building, I could help out where I could. I can do that. But that, that wasn't my responsibility. And that wasn't how I judged my own success was by what happened in those classrooms. It was by what happened in my own. So, yeah, Apple should be doing a lot. You know, Walmart, they all have deep philanthropic arms, partly because they have to, right? Like AT&T, those. But they also are private companies. So the way I temper my expectation is different. The NFL is interesting to me because, again, it doesn't exist without the government intervention. And as you know, as a player, is that like it is black bodies uh, who in a predominantly white watched, at least on TV, sport with no black owner. Uh, so when I think about like, the race politics of it, it seems like a choice to me to have no black owners. It seems like a choice to me to have not a lot of black coaches. It seems like a choice to sort of force Colin out. And um, what Apple's doing doesn't change my expectation about the NFL. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that saying that Apple doesn't change it. Like people literally will stop watching NFL, but they'll never stop using their phone, knowing that the product is being made in another country, that somebody is sweatshop. But at the same time, they'll shame another company. I just feel like if everybody feels that people should have a voice and everybody should be free and all these different things that we can't pick and choose which products make sense for us. You know what I'm saying? Like we can't turn our head when, you know, Nike does this and all we like, okay, it's good that they did this, but why are we not hold them to accountability when this, when they have a sweatshop in the Philippines and these kids are coming to work every day, the metal that gets mined inside the Apple is being somewhere in Africa and that's black bodies every day dying or the diamonds that we, I just feel like it's just, it's like we picking and choosing battles and it's just like, what well, if we're going to pick and choose the battle let's pick let's just make a whole war and let's just take the whole system down but i just feel like people just fear those things because we still want what we want and we still want to get what we want and i just feel like the nfl people say they don't watch the nfl but i just feel like there's people like you who probably really don't watch the nfl and don't care but then i feel like there's other people who say they don't watch the nfl but still watch the nfl even though they might be they might be like i'm not gonna watch monday night football but i'm gonna go to buffalo wild wings I'm going to eat the wings, but I'm not going to watch the game. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And I agree. I like, I agree with the spirit of that. I think that, so two things. One is I think it starts somewhere, right? That the fight has to begin somewhere for people to believe that the fight is possible. And like what happened in New York City with Amazon was incredible. That like Amazon was like, we want all this stuff to come. 
people were like, you don't pay taxes. You can afford to do this on your own. We're not going to let you exploit the city. And like, what happened? They lost the battle. Like Amazon didn't come with a million tax cuts and Amazon is going to come, but is going to pay their way. And like you think about Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, is that like 10 years ago, being a billionaire was like the life goal. And in this moment, you know, you think about Occupy Wall Street and what happened with Bernie and, and Warren and da, 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 like this conversation about being a billionaire is like rooted in exploitation is actually like top of mind, you know. So I would agree with you more if if that wasn't the national conversation. But people are having a conversation about sort of extreme wealth and like the way you even get to be a trillion dollar company like an Apple, you know. But still, this Apple phone that I'm using right now, this Apple phone that I'm using right now, though, somebody had to die for it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but the, but I, this is like not. I'm just saying. I'm just. I, I'm just saying. At the end of the day, I'm just saying. Like, it's just like the thing on plastic and all these different things. It's like people stop using plastic straws, but then everything in the store is made out of plastic. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why isn't the big companies being held accountable for their contribution to plastic? I do feel like the NFL is making strides, but I don't think it's ever going to be the way it should be until the players actually step up for the coaches and make a voice for the coaches. I don't see the having that dramatic of a change because at the end of the day, when the black player is still going to play without the black coach, that's the biggest issue for me. If your kid's school was screwed up and the school was treating your kid poorly, would you intervene or would you wait until all the schools around decided to make a stand about the issue of bullying or racism? I homeschool. You homeschool. I homeschool. Well, there we go. Um, like, I, my only question is if we took that argument, we would never fight, right? If it was like, well, you know, you don't do anything until we end all plastic and end child trafficking and did it overnight, then, like, we'd never do anything. And I think that what, my only push is that, like, it, it starts somewhere, you know? I'm not saying that this, it shouldn't start somewhere. I'm just saying that, like, it's unfair for... We say we don't use a straw, but the same company that we still love, the Lay's plastic or Lay's bag that we eat in the chips in, we're not requiring them to change the chip bag. I just said that the consumer has a, a big place in making sure that everything changes that we wanted to change. I just feel like the plastic straw is a big is a is a big step. But I think there's more that we can do if we just say if we said we didn't want to eat chips out of a plastic bag anymore. They wouldn't make chips in a plastic bag no more. I think the consumer has a lot to do with it. I think the consumer has a lot to do with it. You are traveling because, Michael, you are teaching a course this semester on sports and activism. Is this your first time teaching a course at the college level? Yeah, it's my first time teaching a course at the college level. It's been pretty interesting. Uh, it's not a lot of black students at University of Hawaii, but then also there's a lot of Polynesian. And there's way more women, too. I feel like in my class, their voices are so powerful. There's their ideas, the things that they're coming up with, how they feel about things. Pele, how do you think about your kids playing football or like being involved in a sport like football uh, where the injury rate seems to be higher than many other sports? Mm -hmm. So we have three girls and um, I did not grow up in a sport related family. My family was more into arts and music. Sports come, you know, later for me. I'm more into the music and the arts and creative in some other space. I'm not saying I don't like sports. You know, I support Michael, I'm, but we've been together so long that that's also I felt like default. <laughs> it just kind of came along with us. Um, but with the girls, because Michael is also an athlete, I also have to consistently and continually teach them that they don't have to go that route. You know, they don't have to go into sports. There's so many other things that they can do. But if they want to go that route, I don't mind nurturing that also. But when it comes to what I've personally seen with, you know, Michael and with other close friends of ours and just different players, you know, with concussions and different, you know, career ending injuries. I mean, that is a huge fear. And so I would always say, you know, before watching a game, I would always 
pray for safety. I would pray for, but not only for Michael, just in general, because it's just a fear that comes over while you're watching this. And I feel like that can still happen with my girls playing sports in general. You know, anything can happen. If they're swimming, I feel that any type of um, physical activity, but um, I also don't want them to be scared. I just want to have this open conversation with them. If they're really wanting to do something that they feel passionate about, I want them to be able to do it. And I want to nurture that at the same time. I'm also a mom, so I want to be protective. But I've also been through Michael's career and seen so many injuries and, and how it changes also in your family. You know, someone gets injured, it changes, can change the role in the marriage, can change the role as the husband, wife, as being a parent to the children, being a friend to someone being a brother, you know, it kind of goes down. And I think people don't see that part. You know, they see the injury, oh, they stopped playing or they see the injury, he needs to get surgery. But there's so many little ripples that come with that injury that people don't see and fans don't have to witness that. They're not a part of that. They just see the person on TV and then they're gone. But you think about all the people that are affected and, and I do mean the family that are affected and it can be very deeply affected where that's where your community and your village and your round of people um, has to be strong and you have to have people that you can turn to because it's a lot bigger than what people see. Yeah, I think too, I think because of the injuries, there's so much dehumanization of the athlete. And it's like, because people feel that the athlete can do things that are unhuman, that they don't really put that human characteristic on them when things happen. So it's, I feel like they just move past into the whole fantasy of the game. Like there's such a fantasy of the player, like, Oh, Patrick Mahomes, he could do this, he could do that. But it, like when they say the injury and the way that they talk about the injury, they say it like it's not really a big thing. They'd be like, oh, it's a concussion. But it'd be like, it's a bruise on the brain. That's a big issue to think that your brain has a bruise on it. And I think people just don't really understand the magnitude of the injuries that each individual deals with on a different day. So that's why sometimes when I watch basketball and I watch Steph Curry fall, I'm like, man, he just fell down. They got to carry him off the field. But then when I go into a locker room and I see guys like Rondé Barber who knee can barely bend or like this is just football is such a gladiator sport. And I think some people forget people are still just human beings. Do you feel like you had to learn more about like what a concussion actually means and looks like and might look like 48 hours after a game? Like what that sort of feels like and looks like? Yeah, 100%. I definitely had to learn about that. And Michael has had his different injuries where was a learning experience for all of us. And I think also tests you, you know, your ability to because it's not so much the injury part. It's really the after. And once that starts to happen and unravel and you start seeing what that looks like, and maybe it's not within your home, but also me seeing it through, you know, friends of ours that had to go through it or someone coming to me with different stories. I mean, honestly, I was like baffled. My mind was blown to things that happened because of it. And I think through this time, I have learned so much, but not only from Michael, you know, it's just from being and witnessing other people go through different situations and different injuries. And I think that's what, to be honest, the fear does become larger. You know, it's like you're watching the game and there's a bubble, it just starts creating a bigger space. And then you're in this bubble of fear as you're watching the game. And more so, of course, for my husband, but I see it as every player when they do go down or something happens, I like grab my chest. I'm like, oh my God, I really hope they're safe because I'm thinking of them individually, but I'm really thinking about that ripple to their kids, their spouse, their family, because it's so much more that goes into it where players are not only a person in someone's life, they're also caretakers. They're financially supportive to family members, you know, whatever that looks like, but it's a lot more than just that one injury. 
Is there more the NFL can do around medical support or long-term care for, for football players, given that even if it's not a concussion or like a life-ending in- injury, your body just has to withstand so much? Yeah. I feel like there should be centers around the United States where athletes from different sports should be able to go in and deal with the medical trauma of, of what's happened to them, whether it's um, emotional um depression, injuries, marriage counseling, just because I feel like there should be a, a lifetime support of this because I feel like each individual who chooses the life of sports is put into a straight lane in the box. They don't really have a chance to figure out their hobbies or figure out who they are individually. And they, a lot of these players come from broken homes and there's trauma and it's just like so much to add on top of that, the injuries and concussions and all these different things. So I feel like there should be a long-term um, insurance as long as you live. And I, like I said, I think there should be centers across the United States. I think that each player, after they finish their career, should have to spend the three weeks in with doctors, getting decompressed, you know, getting the R&R, figuring out who they are, talking to counselors, making sure that they are ready to put back into society. Like I said, because a lot of times people are dealing with being controlled their whole life. And then all of a sudden that control goes away and they don't have any guidance. You know, they don't have to do all these things. And a lot of times they don't even know their whole family. They don't know their wife. They don't know anything. So they just get put back into this world with money, but the lack of identity and the lack of pride and the lack of social structure. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. And I think the NFL should definitely focus on those issues, not just the physical ones, but also the mental part of the game, because I think that's where a lot of players get defeated and end up committing suicide because the idea of being inside yourself and not knowing who you really are, the idea of, you know, not being with your family. I can see how some people can be overwhelmed by those issues and end up taking their life. Now, let's segue to you, uh, earlier talked about that you don't think change will come with the NFL unless it comes from within, unless the players start to organize. Uh, What does that look like? Do you think that that can happen quickly? Do you think that that might happen? I know that you and other players started an organizing piece around social justice. Is that the beginning of it? Like, what does that look like internally? We have to come together. I think there's a side of people who are on still believe that if Kaepernick doesn't have a job, then there's no progress. And then there's like people who's on this other side is like, He's wounded, but we still have to move on and have to continuously make progress. And I feel like until both sides can collectively come together and realize that the whole mission of everything that we started was for the people and was for people that don't have a voice. And I think that's something that we lack. And I think that's going to have to be the biggest change. And I think people have to sit down and get over their own um, selfish ambitions and be able to look forward as a collective And I think that's hard because a lot of us are still on the Kaepernick side. Like, man, like this guy has done so much but still doesn't have a job. And I think – I just think it takes – it's going to take a while, but I think there's movement towards it. And I think even though we're doing these things with social issues, I think there needs to be more rapport about why aren't there enough African-American people in positions of power within the NFL. I think it's going to take a while, honestly. I think it's going to take a while because I still think – everybody's still focusing on their pocket. I think everybody's focusing on, on themselves and trying to build up that, build up themselves. And, and I understand that. I understand people are like, well, I'm not, I'm not a social justice warrior. I don't understand other people's, like I'm just trying to do it for my family. I actually see people doing that. But I just don't understand why when finally you do get the money and you finally get this and you still 
scared to have a voice. I, I just don't understand that part of it. So I think there's a long journey that we still have to go forward. And I think it's just as we continuously move forward and we change the game and we change contracts, we definitely have to continuously push forward on these social issues that we want. And I think people like Malcolm Jenkins are doing a great job at that way of trying to have that. I think there's this political side of doing things. Then I think there's this organic organizing side that still needs to be connected together. Do you think that the, the workout they did with Colin was done in good faith? I don't know. I feel like, I don't know if it was in good faith. I think the the NFL was like, here's an opportunity and um, you want it or you not. But I feel like from Kaepernick's side, he's like, look, is is this a real opportunity? I don't know if it was both sides could have had a conversation. I think they left it up to public opinion too much. I think the public got involved in a private situation way too early and it got leaked. I think there was a lot of kinks that needed to be worked out before there was a public um, workout. I don't know if the NFL was truly wanting him back in the NFL, and I just don't know. I mean, I still think that Kaepernick can play in the NFL. If you see a lot of quarterbacks, if Josh McCown can still play in the NFL, all these other quarterbacks who are just mediocre can play. And Kaepernick, if you, if you saw the, the things that he put up, the arm was strong. The running ability was there. So I, I think he should definitely have an opportunity to still play in the NFL. And were you involved in any of the ads that ran during the Super Bowl, the Inspire Change? Are you still involved in that campaign? No, I'm not involved in that. I mean, I haven't been. I'm more doing stuff behind the scenes, like trying to work with Columbia and create like a program where guys can have a a guidebook on to what social justice looks like for them, a mentorship for them, different people in the community where they can go out to and trying to help them build within themselves as being the leader that they want to be. Because I feel like there's people who are ready to lead and understand their voice, but then there's people who want to step past that line, but fear some things that come with stepping past that line and they fear not being ready. So I feel like there is this opportunity to help them mentor players to be able to have a voice. So I wasn't a part of that inspired change. I'm not part of the political side of the, uh, with the rest of the people. <laughs> Pele, I want to know um, what's like your next thing. Like what keeps you, what's your like passion or big idea, big dream? What's your what? I would say food. And I'm not only necessarily nutrition, but um, food advocacy. I have been within our foundation. We work with health and um, food deserts and different communities um, for resources. That's what I'm passionate about. How'd you get to food? Like why of, of the issues, how'd you get to food? So I, it definitely started within our foundation. That's basically what our foundation is, is that we help communities not only find resources for food, but also going back and bringing it to the roots on like, where does food come from? Why are we eating this food? But then on the other part is like the systemic side of it. Why are we eating certain foods? Why is this food in our community? Why are these companies? And then it kind of leads them to that pyramid. And it just fascinated me to coming from Polynesian background, you know, we have so many different medical issues where it's diabetes, gout, I mean, so many things. And and it's so sad because we've lived in Hawaii also the last seven years now. And so my father, who went to school here, we would come and we would visit on the other side of the island. And every time we come back, we go visit my grandparents who are buried. And each time my dad would say, oh, it's a new plot. Someone just passed. They were just buried. And we would walk over there and it would be someone he knew. And this honestly would happen yearly. And I would say, oh, what happened? You know, who was this person? And it all came down to food. 
it came down to the lack of resources. And so that really, you know, just boggled my brain. And I just wanted to learn more about that. And I also love food in general, but I love the science of food, how food really can change your literally that your brain have the ability to make decisions, how it functions in your body for activity that you do. And then that stemmed down into the family to my children, you know, how was the food affecting them on an everyday basis, also food as a medicine, what that looks like. And so I think it's just kind of me getting into full circle traditions within my own family. And then it reflects on now how food looks at to other people. Also, I look at uh, Michael's side of the family because we're both actually from the South. I grew up in Houston. And so I have a lot of experiences with Southern food. And so it, it just keeps unraveling and it keeps going. And it's just fascinating where food to me brings us together at the table, but also where food brings us from other countries and coming into one. In this food justice journey, what have you learned that you didn't know? Like, what what have you learned in the process of doing this work that was surprising or interesting? Or And Michael, too, like, what, what have you learned in these past years doing the work around advocacy and justice uh, that you didn't know? I think I learned that there's a lot of trauma within the activists. Like, they take on so much. Because sometimes I forget, like, like, we look at a lot of people and we look at them as superheroes, but then they have, like, families and stuff like that. So I feel like it's almost like an athlete in some in some aspects. I feel like there's a lot of people who take on the burden of the world. And i just seen a lot of people who are just really, really strong. And I think that we should definitely do more for the people who speak up for, for society and the things that they burden. And I think i just seen a lot of that, like, the pain that each person figured. Like, just to think about, like, some people who speak on certain issues and that they worry about the fear of their family. I just think there's a lot more that comes with stepping up and having a voice that should be spoken about in the traumas. If you look at like John Carlos, and we had him on and he was just talking about the death of his wife and it was too much and having to do all this stuff. Just so, you know, so people around there that do social issues can have therapy groups and people that can help them have a conversation with them um, somewhere where people they can go after to decompress you know there's a house in Hawaii that they can go decompress and recapture themselves and um, dealing with their family I think that's one thing that I've learned but then also I feel like I've learned that you know there's so much historical context to what's happening it's just like I feel like with the younger people that I've seen or talking to people some people my age it's like people have forgotten their history and what has happened historically to their ancestors is like I just feel like people either they forgot or they just become numb so I think there's a big step in helping people remember the warriors of our culture and what we can continue to do and making sure that we don't repeat the same mistakes a lot of times I feel like people feel like they're the first to do something I'm like no they did that in 1960 they did that in 1930 so just remembering that there's people who are leaders that are still alive that we can go out and reach out to to help us help me mold my ideas and help other people mold their ideas. Boom. Everybody, listen to Mothpiece, M-O-U-T-H-P-E-A-C-E. Uh, thanks for joining us today on Pod of the People. We consider y'all friends of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you Thank for you having so much. us. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. 
I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.